Welcome to Shed, a podcast brought to you by the Vineyard Gazette. I'm your host, Eric Adams. During the fall of 2020, I interviewed members of our Martha's Vineyard community about the impact and implications of race in their lives. As a practicing therapist, I was interested in exploring the unique experiences that shape the lives of each guest and influence the way they see themselves and the world. We chose the name Shed to encourage listeners to do away with old beliefs that no longer serve us and to shed some light on systemic racism and its effects on us as individuals as well as the communities in which we live. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay. I'm sitting here watching three swans fly away. I don't know what that represents, but it's something good, I think. Hello, and welcome to Shed. I'm your host, Eric Adams. Today, we are joined by our good friend, Andy Chelly. Andy is a civil rights attorney representing individual plaintiffs in complex police misconduct, voting rights, and discrimination cases. Andy has defended civil rights on many levels and has served in the New York State Attorney General's office. He is the father of three, a true ally to the Black Lives Matter movement, and a seasonal resident of Martha's Vineyard. Thanks for joining us. Sure, my pleasure. Andy, where did your passion come from? Well, for me, this has a personal component and a professional component. And the professional component is easier Mm. because I've spent the last almost 30 years practicing law as a lawyer representing people in civil rights cases. It's about half of what I do. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people say, oh, you're a civil rights lawyer. And what I say back to that is, no, I'm a lawyer whose clients have civil rights problems. And I say it that way because that part of my life is about service of clients, very specifically, and the interpersonal aspect of it. (laughs) The people who come into my office in crisis and sit in my conference room and weep and tell me their stories, and then I have to try to me me and my colleagues have to try to fit that into boxes, legal boxes. Is this a case? What can we accomplish by it? Is it going to be satisfy any of your goals? And Mm -hmm. we can talk about that. That's like my professional life. Can I ask you though, what's the difference then between a civil rights attorney and an attorney that practices civil rights? One way to think about it is that there are groups and organizations of lawyers who are agenda driven right? Who say, okay, here's an agenda point that we want to accomplish. Now let's find people who can stand for that point and Mm -hmm. then litigate on behalf of them to achieve the agenda. Okay. And that's part of what we do. That's what I think people think of as a civil rights lawyer. As a lawyer whose clients have civil rights problems, it's more like someone has been victimized because of their race, because they have been the victim of police overreach or brutality, Mm -hmm. because of their belief system, because of their religion, their sexual orientation, any of those categories. And then they are trying to get justice in their own case. There's a broad agenda that's Mm -hmm. off in the future, Mm -hmm. and you're part of it. Mm -hmm. But day to day, you're there trying to represent an individual person who's trying to achieve a goal which is to right the wrong that they have suffered. So maybe that's a little too... No, that's nuanced, but it's understandable. Yeah, and you know, just at a personal level, for me, I've been a civil rights lawyer in the sense of fighting for an agenda. I was chief of the Civil Rights Bureau, which is a, an enforcement bureau for the state of New York for mm-hmm. four years, and it was great. 
basically I came up with ideas of things that pissed me off. <laughs> My colleagues the same would be like, that sucks. We got to do something about it. Mm. But there's something about the personal side of serving a client mm -hmm. that to me is very resonant. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's like on the professional side, on the personal side. Now I grew up in a household, a white Italian household, very unusual that race and justice issues were part of the daily discussion. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I say to my kids, we're race people. We, we talk about this. Mm -hmm. There is no colorblind, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason I grew up in that household is that my dad was a lawyer and a judge. Mm, interesting. And he sat in a court that was almost entirely violent felony cases. And I spent a lot of time sitting in that courtroom waiting for him to take me home at the end of a school day, watching trials, talking to him about work, about his work. I think it cost him years that he sent people away, mm. even though he knew that was part of it. And he was the kind of judge who was often criticized for not being harsh enough. Mm -hmm. But you cannot touch the criminal justice system for more than about three seconds and not understand the centrality of race, even as a teenager, as a kid. Mm. And so for me, this was just, it was part of America. And I guess I had a journey too, but it wasn't really a conscious one. It just was there. Mm -hmm. You know, it mm -hmm. just was part of who we all are. So in the family. What do you think of the journey so far? Well, the journey is the most important part. Someone said, well, how, how's it going, right? Maybe that's one way to put it. <laughs> how's the journey going? Are you getting any closer? Mm -hmm. You're making progress. We're making progress, right. Are we making progress? That's not an easy question. It's not, is it? I think that it's very easy to say, we've come a long way and we have a long way to go. Mm -hmm. And that's true. Mm -hmm. But I, it's I, like a euphem. I mean, it's just such a, it doesn't really speak to the question though. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that somebody asked Cho and Lai, the, the uh, Vietnamese leader, what did he think of the French revolution? Right. Mm. In the sixties, they asked him, what did he think of the French revolution of 1787? And he said, it's too early to tell, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel like that's where I am. Okay. Um, I feel like we're doing righteous work. We're trying. I want to come back to your personal question mm -hmm. in a second, but I fear that we're going to look back on this and say, where were you? What mm -hmm. were you up to? You know, this wasn't nearly enough. So but you'll have an answer for that personally. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. This summer has been very powerful for me because 2020, you can't not think about it. Yeah. And so the, this summer, the personal and the professional kind of merged. Mm -hmm. As a professional, you have to maintain certain detachment. You have to maintain your good judgment. You have to give advice and then take direction from your clients. But it's personal. <laughs> and the swords do cross. Mm -hmm. And you can't put it behind you. You can't, you know, maybe you can close your eyes on the beach for a week or two, but you're not really getting away from it. Mm -hmm. So that was the lesson of the summer for me. Going to a lecture is great and watching a film is fun and you can learn from that, but learning from your neighbors. Yeah. I think that there's one thing that every adult can do who becomes a parent and that is to mm. communicate this, not in a didactic way, like you're going to learn your math, you're going to learn your social studies, and now you're going to learn the racial history of the United States. <laughs> in an emotional way, mm -hmm. in a real way, mm -hmm. including by who you spend time with. <laughs> I'm an old school integrationist that you need to be with other kinds of people. Mm -hmm. You can't live a life of 
living in your own bubble. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's bad enough that our culture and our our real estate and our, you know, sort of political world is segregated. You have to try to desegregate your life, your personal life. But Andy, if that's so, I agree with that sentiment that by having more diversity in our life, it, it kind of broadens our experience. Why do so many people live a segregated life? So I'm reading this book right now called Survival of the Friendliest, Hmm. which is about the evolutionary development of human beings. The argument is that humans who were inclined to be more cooperative and friendly and communicative got an evolutionary advantage Hmm. over other branches of the human tree and that we have homo sapiens being the most cooperative Mm -hmm. and, and communicative. And what the author also says is that so there's cooperation and which allows you to foster a sense of fellowship right with other people Mm -hmm. at the same time that fellowship is exclusionary Mm. it's the stranger who looks like you Mm -hmm. that you welcome Mm -hmm. the stranger who doesn't look like you you fear Mm. and uh, you know it just got me thinking that you know we've evolved in so many ways beyond what our genes are this may be something that is innate mm-hmm. <laughs> that we have to push back against, even though there are things in us biologically that cause us to want to segregate and be on in an in-group. Can we overcome our biology? Of course we can. Mm-hmm. We fly in the air. <laughs> we go to the moon. Example. Right? I mean, yeah, of course we can. But you have to recognize it and want to do it. Right? Right? We wanted to get to the moon. And we did it. We We don't want to desegregate. We don't want to as a culture. That's still an extremely controversial idea. But it seems that maintaining segregation, whether it's in housing or in the jobs or school education, it seems like it would be more work to keep those boundaries in place than to just allow people to accept that you've got 300 years, 400 years of Structures, correct, correct. There's another great book, not to quote books, but I read a lot. So there's another great book that on this point called The Color of Law, Mm. which is about the policies behind housing segregation, not just that people want to live with other people that are like them, Mm -hmm. but that as a government in, you know, starting in the post-war era, as the suburbs were being developed, you know, there were not only explicit racial policies about like, you know, no black people in Levittown. Mm -hmm. We all know about that, but also implicit ones about where the lending was going on and where the, where the highway was going to be put. Mm -hmm. Right. In theory, is it easy to desegregate? Maybe, but in practice, you're fighting against an infrastructure that's been there for a very long time, Mm -hmm. both a physical infrastructure, I think, and a mental and emotional one too. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in, you, if you don't mind my asking, <laughs> okay, because I didn't know you were biracial, mm-hmm. and I, but I did know that you're a marriage therapist and mm-hmm. counselor, and your parents must have been kind of amazing trailblazers in those days. They were. And I don't know that I really acknowledged that till later in life, because they were married in the 50s, when to do so in most of the country at that point was still illegal. Mm. And... My mom lost her family because of her choice to be with my father. Mm. It was really difficult for them. They, they faced a lot of pushback from friends, and they had a difficult time developing a circle of community 
in white suburban Philadelphia in the 60s and 70s. Mm. It was brave. And if you knew my mom, you, you wouldn't, brave is not the word that would necessarily pop to your mind, but mm. there's great courage, I think, in stepping out and going against what the, uh, the norms are in this country. Mm. Do you think that your choice to work in the field that you work in is at all related to that? 100%. Oh, really? Well, my father was a marriage and family therapist okay. and a psychoanalyst, and my mother was a social worker for a school for 25 years and had a private practice. And like you guys described, you know, the conversation around our dinner table was about current events and politics and race. Mm -hmm. And so we were raised to be aware of these things and, and to start to get a sense of how these elements of our society operated together and what that really meant both on a, a macro level and also what it meant for us as individuals. I grew up spending a lot of my life feeling, at least early on, I was kind of too black for my white friends and too <laughs> white for my black friends. So mm. there was not a really neat place to fit in. And, you know, in the 60s, I don't even think the term biracial was even around. Mm. I remember I told my grandmother, my father's mother, when I was probably nine years old, because she, she was calling me black. And I said, Grandma, I'm not black. <laughs> I'm interracial. <laughs> And she said, well, what the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> it's really easy, I think, to um, look at some of the progress we've made and feel that we've accomplished a lot and we've done a good job and we've lifted our country out of a really dark period. But all you have to do is open up the paper or, or turn on CNN and you know that's not true. For the first time, we're really starting to take a look at the history of policing in this country how we're policing, uh, how much money we're spending on policing, are police responding, protecting and serving us the way that we would like them to, or are they not? Could they be doing a, a better job and could we do things differently? That's a big topic. Huge. <laughs> um, it's something I've worked on for a very long time and mm -hmm. in a variety of ways. I say, and this is only a little bit tongue in cheek, that for a brief period, I took over a small police department in upstate New York. How did you do that? <laughs> we, when I was working for the New York Attorney General, we brought a lawsuit that resulted in a consent decree that allowed us to essentially run this little department hmm. in upstate New York with the assistance of a wonderful chief guy who had been a very high-level guy in the NYPD, and he was really the monitor who kind of ran the thing. And I've sued a lot of cops mm -hmm. <laughs> in my day. How's that feel? Uh, um, well, you know, they're just like regular people mm -hmm. in the following sense. There's, there's such a range, right? Yeah. But they're not like regular people in a different sense, which is that the uniform gives them a level of, I don't know what the right word is. It's protection, but it's more than protection. They're Superiority? Part of their, yeah, they're part of their own club. And they are taught that exercising authority, even beyond what's reasonable, is and control is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. They're not taught about the give and take of human life, mm -hmm. of that you're going to have a conversation and you're not going to always agree. Mm -hmm. I tell my kids, if, if you, if you want to spend the night in jail, go up to a police officer when he or she's in the middle of doing something else and say to them, I don't like what you're doing. 
I'm taking down your badge number. I'm going to report you. Mm. You will go to jail. Mm. On what charge? Interfering with the duties of an officer? Yeah, there's, there's, there's an expression, the police take you down the road, ROAD. Mm-hmm. It's resisting arrest, obstructing governmental administration. Mm. Disorderly conduct is the D. And what's the A? I'll think of it. Okay. <laughs> These are classic cover charges. Mm-hmm. Uh, the contempt of cop is really what we're talking about. And what happens in these cases, and I've handled many of them, is that the process is the punishment. Hmm. You're not going to be found guilty of disorderly conduct, but it doesn't matter. But you got to hire the attorney, you got to pay the, the fines, and you, you got to go to court, and you mm. and you're terrified, and maybe you get hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, sometimes it's it can be real brutality, even on a minor scale, and you're in jail overnight. You know, and that's the lesson that people are being taught, mm-hmm. and it has to do with, I think, the way police are trained that the most important thing is to control the situation. And if that means a little bit of overreaction, that's okay. Mm -hmm. I think that there are some police leaders who see that that is a fraught and mistaken belief system. It's kind of like what we were talking about in desegregation. The structures are so deeply embedded, it's going to take a long time for them to change. Mm -hmm. But there are some enlightened leaders and enlightened cops, you Mm -hmm. know. But my experience, sadly, is that that is a pretty common feature mm-hmm. in American policing. A friend of mine once said, the wrong people join the police force because they join seeking adventure, mm-hmm. but really it's a job about service. And not enough people see it as a service job. Mm-hmm. They see it as like joining the military. Right. <laughs> and of course, with the, you know, the militarization of the police, generally that's, these things feed into one another. Mm-hmm. We are asking or training are police to be warriors rather than guardians? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, they refer to the neighborhoods as occupied zones. Yes. We own the night, which mm-hmm. was the phrase that was used about the Viet Cong. That has been adopted by units of the NYPD. We mm-hmm. own the night. Mm-hmm. Like, what are we talking about? This mm-hmm. is somebody's neighborhood. <laughs> this is not a jungle where there's gorillas out there. This is a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. That has to change. How um, does that change, though? My view on this is probably the more controversial than, than some. I think that police organizations are military in nature. They're mm-hmm. command structures. And the change has to begin at the top, leadership. There's a lot of talk about we need to train cops better. That's true. We need to do diversity and cultural sensitivity and de-escalation, all true. But unless the person at the top says, you're going to get fired if you do the wrong thing, Mm -hmm. it'll never change. Enlightened leadership can change attitudes in a military organization. That's my view. Mm. And the other things about the training, I think it's important and it should be done, but I don't think it's the answer. Mm-hmm. I think it's only a, a modest part of the answer. Mm-hmm. Now, if you want to get really philosophical about it, you, you pull back the camera from the police organization as such and really talk about the culture. Why do we have police departments exactly? Mm-hmm. And what is their function in society really And if you start to question that and redirect resources, we've been talking this summer about defunding the police, Mm -hmm. really redirecting resources, that's a way to bring about change too. But that has to be in, there's always going to be a police force. There just is. 
And so I think it has to be in combination with enlightened leadership. Can you talk a little bit about qualified immunity? The bane of my existence. (laughs) I can't believe your listeners want to hear it, but you know, there is a doctrine made up by judges, not passed by any legislature, not voted on by any voter that basically says, yeah, the cop did the wrong thing, but we're not going to do anything about it. Mm. That's qualified immunity in a nutshell. I Why mean, would that be? The stated reason is we want, we being the court system, want to allow officers wiggle room to make honest mistakes. That's sort of what they say, to make honest mistakes. Mm-hmm. Okay? And so if they color a little bit outside the lines, then we're going to let that go. We're not going to require them to respond to a lawsuit. It's about civil lawsuits. It's about paying money, which, mm-hmm. by the way, they never do. Mm-hmm. The officers never pay. But the city does. The city right? does. Yeah. Exactly. There's a huge disconnect between misconduct and accountability. Like, mm-hmm. they, they don't even, like, talk to each other. But even if your issue is, like, okay, so this, we deal with this in our firm, we want our client to recover money for the injuries that she suffered or he suffered. And they're going to get it from the city. And the idea is that officers should be given a little bit of leeway. Mm-hmm. The problem is, first of all, no one ever voted on that. So there's that. <laughs> That's a big democratic small d problem. And then from a practical aspect, the cases have expanded it so hugely that it's very hard to hold officers accountable at all. Mm-hmm. I had a case a couple of years back. We do a lot of work around demonstrations, people who get arrested at demonstrations. I had video. We had video of the entire incident. It clearly showed the sergeant and two officers violating the law in five different ways that I could describe to you. And the court agreed. said, yeah, that's true. But we don't want to be too harsh on the cops. And so the case was dismissed. And we don't want to be too harsh on them because... They have a hard job. Okay. I mean, that's the rationale. I feel like the rationale has been because they're the only barrier between us and danger. I think that's true. That's the deeper, the deeper meaning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think you I think you say it better than I did. They get that leeway. It's ironic because they're the only people in society who are allowed to use violence, yes. who are allowed to lock people up, um, to exercise physical control over other human beings. Yes. And so it seems to me that they should be the ones who are the most tightly controlled. Should be held to a higher standard <laughs> right. by the law. But that's because it. we're entrusting them with protecting us. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. What is it that keeps you going? What keeps you in this difficult fight against such huge institutional opponents? Two things, maybe three things. There's the personal that I've talked about that's just in me. On the professional level, it's the storytelling. People need to have the stories told. And I've had clients say that winning and losing doesn't matter if the story is told and told publicly. And... The third thing is what I see happens to people, what they're able to do when we prevail. It doesn't fix the problem, even in the one case. It doesn't repair the injury or the trauma, but they're able to do certain things with money. And so I'm, I'm thinking about a client now who we settled a case on the eve of trial. He had been beaten by the police in the West Village outside a bar very badly. And he and his partner had moved to San Francisco because they were so traumatized by what had happened. 
and they bought a house in San Francisco and we settled the case and the settlement allowed him to not get a mortgage. He was able to pay for the house cash. Mm. You know, that doesn't happen in every case, not even close, but there are things that money can help with that I think salve the wounds, even if they don't heal them. Well, Andy, I mean, you're a wealth of information. Thanks. It's been terrific. It's to, been great. To meet I, you after standing across from absolutely. you all summer. Absolutely. to know each other a little bit. <laughs> Happy to be here. Shed has been brought to you by the Vineyard Gazette. Thank you again for listening. And if you like what you heard, please share our podcast with your friends and family. Shed is produced by Amy Schumer, Renee Richardson, Jack Ebby, Tony Phillips, Chris Fisher, and the Vineyard Gazette.